0: This is a Radio.com original. You know, I talked to a lot of his friends, and they just said life with him was just so interesting. I remember James Coburn, um, yeah, the great actor, just basically saying, you know, guys like McLean made life interesting. And he said, no, I'm going to miss him. You know, McLean was just one of those guys that just, if something wasn't happen, happening, he he made it happen.
1: Hey, everybody. Greetings and exclamations. It's time for another Talking About Cars podcast. I'm Randy Cardoon. Alone this time, Hot Rod Bob Beck has something really important to be doing, and uh, he's getting it done right now. So that's good. It's been a while since I've done this thing alone. Let's see if I still remember how to do it. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the late Steve McQueen. You know the actor, the late Steve McQueen. He was in so many great movies. Bullet, The Great Escape. He was in The Blob. Did you know that, the great Steve McQueen? He was in The Blob. Uh, He was also in Towering Inferno. That was later in his career. But he had one thing going that everybody who's a car person knows about. He was a car guy. He was also a motorcycle guy. And he loved it. And that's what we're bringing you in this edition of the Talking About Cars podcast. We're talking a little bit about Steve McQueen, the late Steve McQueen, who passed away due to cancer at the age of 50. Boy, that's young. That is so young. Steve McQueen said a lot of things, did a lot of things, and he loved cars and he loved fast motorcycles and fast cars. There's a guy who has written a book and it's an interesting book. And it's basically in the words of Steve McQueen as he spoke them. And that'll be kind of fun to talk a little bit about as we talk with, uh, the guy who wrote the book Marshall Terrell and he's going to be joining us as soon as I snap my fingers because that's kind of what we do and since Bob isn't here to do the big introduction I'll just do it myself but again we're going to talk a little bit about Steve McQueen and talk a little bit about some of the things that made him a car guy and so and kind of get it behind his head 40 years after his passing that's right 40 years ago he passed away uh in quite a career he left and again quite a legacy when it comes to cars so without further ado let's bring in marshall terrell and there he is ladies and gentlemen marshall terrell joining us here on the talking about cars podcast uh marshall from his palatial mansion somewhere in the uh Mountain time zone, at least he is this time of the way. Marshall, Marshall, thanks Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Yeah, I'm in beautiful Tempe, Arizona, where it's 94 degrees today. Wow. Yep. Very good for you and us. Tell us a little bit about this book. I mean, you've done a lot of um, books for kind kind of personality profiles for a lot of celebrities. What was it about in this concept? Regarding Steve McQueen, first off, explain kind of what the book is all about.
0: Well, it's called Steve McQueen in His Own Words, and the concept is to have a photo book. But the, the the real idea was the fact that I kept seeing all these McQueen books come out year after year, and 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 I've written more than anybody, so I, I just want to say that I'm I'm in that class and I'm the biggest offender. But I've seen um, McQueen books come out year after year, and then I started thinking, you know what? The poor guy has really—he never got to speak out because you—you know—he was—he was he a—a was a, a closed-in introvert, but he never really got to say what he wanted to say about his life. He did want to do a book at the end of his life. Uh, then he got cancer, um, and he was going to do it with Charles Champlin, great uh, writer from the Los Angeles Times. And um, I just started thinking—you know—all these guys have written these books about Steve McQueen, but he's never really had a chance to say what it is that he wanted to say about his life. And so I thought, you know, there's a unique way to do this because I have done so much research over the years, and I collect his the research. I've collected it now for over 30 years, and I continue to collect it, and I continue to meet people that knew him. Um, and uh, uh, so I thought, well, let's do a cool photo book that has his quotes that matches what he said about his life, Chronologically, all the way up to the end of his life, so I have quotes from him, dating from his birth all the way right up to his death. I've got a, I've got a 60-minute uh, audio tape of McQueen three weeks before he died, uh, talking about his life, talking about uh, his wishes, talking about his hopes and his dreams, um, and so I, uh, so then I started formulating this idea, but I thought, oh, this would be cool and this will be fun and this will be fast. Uh, it didn't turn out to be the latter. I started this in 2014.
1: Wow. Well, I, I mean, it's obvious you did the work because there's a, a, what is it, 500 quotes,
0: 500 or
1: 350? I don't remember. 500. 547 quotes. Wow. Yeah. And That's and, and a lot of quotes. I'm sorry. <laughs> found it sounded
0: that uh, did McQueen really talk that much? And that was yes. In the early part of his career he did, um, he was very fond. Well, he wanted to build his career, but he was very fond of Luella Parsons, who had a syndicated column that appeared six times a week. And so he was, during his, his rise to fame, uh, he was constantly talking to her and constantly filling her a little, giving her little tidbits here and there. And in these little tidbits, he'd talk about fame, he'd talk about... You know, anything that kind of struck his fancy. And, of course, we talked a lot of motorcycle and car racing magazines. But then by the time Bullet reached around, he really stopped talking to the press because he no longer, he really no longer needed them. He had established himself. So um, the interesting thing about McQueen's life is, you know, the, the second part of his life from that period from 1970 to 1980, there's a lot less photos of him. There's a lot less quotes. There's a lot less interviews. Um, but I think I did a good job of filling in that gap.
1: Well, I think at the beginning, certainly we caught up to some of the quotes in there. And and I got to tell you, if you like picture books, this is a great picture book. I mean, you you have some really great candid shots. You have some really great shots of him with cars, uh, including some of the cars uh, he had uh, when he first started getting into vehicles and that kind of thing, and including his beloved uh, XKXX, was that what No, no, no. Wait a minute. Where is it? Hold yeah. on. Was it the XKXX? Yes. It was uh, it was in the 50s. It was uh, racing green. And apparently that car he bought, sold, bought it back, and basically hung on to it until he died in around 1980 or so, right? Right. And then that car is, I think it's today, in the
0: Peter Museum <laughs> and worth millions. Um, and that car in particular really kind of showed – his exquisite taste, but it it reminds me of one of the quotes in the book, which I think is one of the most classic quotes. And that is he he had talked about uh, the actor, Tony Curtis, when, you know, he said, when I started making it, I I read this, um, article on on Tony Curtis and he talked about how he became so successful and he walked into his walk out to his driveway and there'd be 10 cars lined up and he looked at them and he didn't know which car to take that day. And McQueen
1: basically said, and I've got a picture to illustrate this, and son of a gun, if it didn't happen to me. Yeah, the the picture is uh, him and a couple of Ferraris, which look pretty identical except for the color. Right, but it'll be be wonderful to be in that spot, to uh,
0: wonder
1: which beautiful
0: $100,000 car you're going to drive today.
1: You know, I can't say I know what that's like, you. (laughs) (laughs) No. I cannot. Nah, my cars are a little cheaper than that, but still a lot of fun. Uh, l- let's talk about some of these. And I, I thought, just some of it. It's interesting how he, in a way, was a simple guy, even though he had a tough upbringing. Uh, he, he always had vehicles going as part of his life. He basically talked about how automobiles and and car and motorcycles were really a big key in his life. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that he was very poor
0: growing up, and motorcycles and cars symbolized to him what he didn't have, and uh, they were, uh, I guess, uh, a yardstick, I guess, in a way to, uh, to measure your success. So th- that was important to him, but,
1: but there was also, of course, if you're a car guy, there's the love of machinery,
0: and he had that too, and I think that was instinctual.
1: I think some of the stories you talk about, uh, you have a picture of him with an MG early in his life, and apparently this is something he won during a, a uh, poker game or something like that. And unfortunately, that car met a semi-tragic demise. Well,
0: and the funny thing is, is that um, it, the, the demise was that he ran over, uh, I guess, a, a, a manhole um, I get, you know, in New York City. And I, I visited New York City in 1989. And uh, I visited a cop buddy, and he drove me around the streets, and it was in my car, and we got three flat tires that night for the same thing. So um, I kind of understood exactly what, what happened to him. Of course, he broke his car in half. I don't know how that happened. We had three flat tires, so but I could see where that
1: happened. Well, according to this, he drove it into an excavation hole in Manhattan. That would pretty much do it for me. <laughs> Those MGs, as cool as they were, they weren't exactly... Uh, very sturdily built right
0: yeah, yes so yeah i think he just left it there so um you know maybe it got buried over by the, by the city
1: yeah maybe it's still in that hole somewhere in manhattan who knows anytime they ever peel up that old uh blacktop or something like that they may find it sitting there sometime uh you know he talks a little bit about uh on uh, page 89 i seem to remember he was talking about um one of his world is very small. All I really know are motor, motorcycles and cars. I guess I live in a world of men. You know, That's, he was a cool guy. I mean, back in the day, he was considered the epitome of cool. I guess.
0: And and even today, I mean, uh, a lot of people kind of use him as a yardstick for cool. Um, they use him as a yardstick as the ultimate male. Um, I, I love that quote because uh, I think. The reporter at the time kind of made him think about life at that time, which was basically he worked, um, he slept, he raced. and everything that he read were basically motorcycle um, and car magazines. And that was kind of it. So um, for him to talk about
1: living in the world of men
0: was absolutely true.
1: Yeah, he was very much into vehicles. He was very much into motorcycles. almost. And I get the feeling that it was more into motorcycles than it was into vehicles. Is that kind of what you got out of it? Yes, and he alternated
0: um, because, you know, shortly after One of the Dead or Alive, he did buy a very – I don't know the make of the model, but it was a Lotus. So he did start car racing afterwards. He was actually car racing in New York City as a struggling actor. Um, and, and I've seen pictures, and it, it, it looked like he was racing that MG. Um, so he alternated between both. I think the more consistent one throughout his life was motorcycles. And it was easier, I guess. You know, he just wanted to go and he wanted to take off, whereas um, car racing required a little bit more effort, a little bit more money, um, and and motorcycle was something he could do for his buddies. they just wanted to go out and you know take a trip and do a camping thing.
1: You know, it's interesting also how he kind of he, he grew up kind of a, in a in a bad situation. Really, he was in uh, one of those uh, boys. Homes out in Chino, California, of all places, uh, and he grew up there. He went away, joined the Marines. Uh, apparently, got himself a job. He was always, I guess, pretty handy with engines because he got himself a job trying to uh, maintain tanks. Yes,
0: he maintained tanks in, in the Marines and um, did actually quite well. Uh, you know, he talked about how you know he wasn't very good, but I think he did that. He did that to enhance his rebel image, but he hmm. looked at his records and I had a, I had a Marine Corps expert, uh, and he said, you know, he advanced pretty quickly uh, during non-war time. Um, and McQueen had always talked about, you know, he would never get promoted, if he, um, he advanced pretty quickly and I think it was because he was pretty handy. He tried to soup up, he said he tried to soup up an engine in, in, the, in the Marine Corps with a with
1: tank and he said, found out that you couldn't. Can't soup up a tank? engine, whether you're in the Marine Corps, the Army, or anything. You, it, apparently, it's, you can't do it. Which is kind of too bad, because that would have been interesting. I, I think nowadays, they wouldn't have minded if you were able to soup up an engine in, uh, for a tank. But those things are pretty big. Yes. yeah, but uh, yeah, the, the great thing about the Marines was like the Boy's
0: Republic that you mentioned earlier, it gave him a form of discipline. So the Boy's Republic, it disciplined
1: him for life, and the Marines got him to the next phase, which was acting. And of course, acting, as he got better and better, he made more and more money. He was able to um, buy nicer and nicer cars. We talked a little bit about the Ferrari situation when he had the two cars he was looking at going, hmm, decision, decision. Were those basically his Ferraris or did they bring him over and say you can buy one or the other? Or did you know that at all? I I seem to recall that there was definitely
0: one, but there were scenarios like that where they would, with, with, where car dealers and motorcycle manufacturers would make deals with him, where he would uh, pose with the car and he would get their, their either their car or their motorcycle for an extended period of time, or he would just get it all together. So, you, you do have an interesting point there. Um, I, I don't I, know. Go ahead. I seem to think that his garage maintained
1: maybe six cars at a time. And that's
0: what he was rotating.
1: We talked about the Jaguar. Uh, the Jaguar Racing Green XKSS, not XX, X, XKSS. And we talked about how he bought it back and forth and all that. And there was a notation in there that said that apparently he bought it back. I guess he sold it to an LATV personality. Do we know who that LA TV personality was? Do you have the initials? <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm saying it, I. If I could remember and give it to you, but I'm getting to a certain age now where I'm quickly approaching history, and the memory just isn't what it used to
1: be. Okay, I'll take that as an answer, sure. Okay, we'll have to investigate that on our own, I think, somewhere down the line. I've got a couple of thoughts myself, because it doesn't sound like, it sounds like a host of a show, or maybe a newscaster, or something like that. But one of his quotes, another quote, when he talks about motorcycles and how much fun it is for him, it was really an outlet for him you know a lot of people will go work out a lot of people will do other things play golf do different things but when it came to motorcycles that was really the release point it sounded at least from the way it was presented that uh, the late Steve McQueen how he looked at motorcycle riding yeah absolutely that's what he said he said
0: motorcycle uh, racing is a release for me um you know he did he actually did do (laughs) workouts. two hour workout every morning and then the motorcycles were really kind of for the weekend. But he, I think he, the, one of the quotes was it, it drains me. Um, it gets all the junk out of my system. Um, and it was good that he recognized that, you know, um, a lot of, a lot of people don't know what would be good therapy for them. And, you know, when he became famous, now keep in mind, this is a guy that goes from uh, this painful childhood and all of a sudden everything's flip-flopped and it's what he called Candyland." he gets everything that he wants and so he doesn't trust anybody to begin with and now he's in Hollywood where everything's given to him and he doesn't trust anyone so
1: what do you do you 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 find that release and and Rachel was that release for him that's actually pretty smart though if you know Hollywood so it you know it turned out to be probably wise thinking on his part and he also talked about he did not want to be one of those actors that waited by the phone or or, for a
0: call. And he wanted to develop another part of his life and racing gave that to him. It gave him his identity. And again, another thing that I think is just
1: beautiful and it's smart. What was it that you learned about Steve McQueen from doing this book that uh, maybe surprised you or that you didn't know before?
0: Well, I certainly think that, and I've always thought he was smart. But this, uh, this kind of, as you read the quotes, there's a certain street, um, street knowledge that he brought, you know, to certain street wisdom that he brought to life. I mean, I, you know, you read these things and you can't help but look at them and go, yeah, he's absolutely right. But it, it, there, he was a lot more insightful than than I thought he was. A lot of people thought, oh, he's just a school guy riding in a motorcycle. But the, 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 the real answer is, especially especially when it came to Hollywood, the first one is, there's nothing in the world that I don't want to know. And that, that appeals to the journalist in me. Um, and what he was referring to was Hollywood. And, um, and that he wanted to know everything on the other side of the camera. He wanted to know about the distribution end. He wanted to know everything. Um, because He knew that it was going to benefit him. Um, So I love that quote. And then the second quote was a reporter asked him, what has success done for you? And this appeals to the cynic in me. And he answered, well, I seem to have a lot more friends.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I can imagine so. Well, I, I found it interesting, though, when you had the look at his early part of his career, and he was talking about some of the early movies he did. Now, this is, of course, before he became a big deal. The Steve McQueen, he played a lot of little roles, including a role in that infamous campy movie of the fifties,
0: The Blob. Yep, and the great quote in, in that one was, um, "And I got this, you won't see it in print." And I got this from the producer of The Blob, Jack Harris, and I, I had interviewed him for another book, and he said that he bumped into McQueen uh, before he bumped into McQueen. He was at the this is this took place in the seventies. Uh, and the Blob took place in the late 50s. And so the, the two hadn't seen each other for a while. And they were at the Trankist Market in Malibu. And there was a lady taking McQueen's groceries and scanning them, talking about all his great movies. McQueen's going, yeah, yeah, that was that was a good one. And then Jack Harris yells out, what about Othello? Or, I'm sorry, he said, what about the Blob? <laughs> he looks back and he, he spots Harris and he smiles. And he goes, well, it wasn't Othello now, exactly now, was it? <laughs>
1: Othello, and, of course, The Blob. Hmm, I wonder, I wonder what. Of course, for those who have never heard of The Blob or those who aren't familiar with it, it was basically one of those sci-fi... It was kind of like Jell-O invades a town and starts eating people. Is that kind of a basic glimpse of what The Blob was all about? That's a great summation of the film. You know, back then, you didn't think about
0: streaming video or VHS or DVDs. He thought that this movie was going to come come and go, and um, so he thought, well, you know, I just I need the experience, I need the cash, and I'll just do it. And then later on, when he became a big star, he was very embarrassed by it. But then, at the end of his life, he kind of got a kick out of the fact that he did it. And he actually called his daughter Terry on the phone uh, one day and said, "Hey," because uh, he was divorced to to the mother at the time. He said, "Hey, watch watch this channel. The Blob's on right now." And of course, back then, you, know, you could only see something again if it was on TV. And so um,
1: he, he kind of learned to live with the blob and, and make fun of it and make fun of himself. Well, that's good, though. It's always good to be able to make fun of it. I mean, it certainly have a good sense of humor, and it seems that's something he did. And he certainly seemed to get along with a lot of people that he worked with uh, to an extent. Uh, the guys, of course, uh, the kind of group um, – that they had there, and that that was going through the uh, the movies and all that. I, I it seems like he, overall, although he had his times, for the most part, he was a he was a very interesting guy. Yeah, he was.
0: He was. Uh, it always seemed like he had always some. He always had something going on. You know, he, um, he he just if he wasn't doing a great film, he always had something else going on in his life, or he had some sort of drama going on. You know, I talked to a lot of his friends, and they just said life with him was just so interesting. I remember James Coburn, um a yeah, great actor, just basically saying, you know, "Guys like McLean made life interesting." And he said, "No, I'm going to miss him." And so, um, you know, McLean was just one of those guys that just, if something wasn't happening, happening, he
1: he made it happen. That's the best way I can sum it sum it up. James Coburn, our man Flint. I don't know why. I, every time I think of James Coburn, I think of that thing because that was his phone ringing, right? Remember? Okay. As a matter of fact, I, I was um, going through Netflix the other night,
0: and I, I saw it. And, I, and what I like doing, I'm <laughs> going through and looking at the old movie trailers, and I saw Our Man Flint, and I said, you know, I've never seen the actual movie trailer theater for that, so let me check it out. And it was just... It was so bad. It was so campy. And they actually <laughs> him dancing. And it was just... It was cringeworthy. But it was just kind of funny.
1: Yeah, well, you know, especially the exaggerated uh, dance moves. And, I mean, it was basically like Batman and Robin from TV days. Right. With a, with a touch of massage me in there. Cause <laughs> really, man. That, that's a Yeah, that but could- back, back then, everybody... Back then, everybody got away with that stuff. Which is... <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't right, mind you, but back then, it was like, I want to say, what, the 60s, 70, early 70s? 1967 is when that movie came out. And then In Like Flint was the sequel. Right. Okay. All right. See, so that'll be your next book. Maybe. Well, I don't know. We'll see.
0: I actually had a couple of conversations with Coburn, and I begged him to do a book. And he basically said, I can't see myself doing a book. Okay. He said, that would be an, uh, uh, an, uh, an egotistic endeavor, is what he said. And I said, yes, maybe, but you've got these great stories that no one knows, and
1: they're going to die with you. And I just to talk to me. Oh, that would have been a great book. That, that would have been a lot of fun as well. We're going to take a break here on the Talking About Cars podcast. When we come back, we're going to talk a little more about what it was like to be uh, Steve McQueen – when Bullet was being made, some of the things that were on his mind and then, also some of the other movies he's done, and we're going to get more. Again, we're talking to Marshall Terrell, who has written this book. And the name of the book, again, is. Steve McQueen in his own words. Steve McQueen in his own words. And we'll be back with Marshall right after this break. Hey, welcome back to the Talking About Cars podcast. I'm Randy Crudoon. That is. Marshall Terrell from the book, Steve McQueen in his own words. And again, it's a great book. Uh, it comes out, uh, in early November, you're going to want to get a certain look at this book because it's a picture book, but it's got all these great Steve McQueen quotes on it. Uh, and where do you find all these great pictures, Marshall?
0: Well, it's just a matter of, uh, research. Um, in the beginning of his life, for example, there's a picture of the hospital where he was born (laughs) In Beach Grove, um, Indianapolis. And um, I consulted uh, a gentleman um, who was the spokesperson for the hospital and we actually became really good friends. Um, and he sent that to me and said, yeah, no problem. Um, and then I found uh, his birth certificate um, and I consulted a librarian at the Beach Grove Library. And um, so I got that from him. Um, and then uh, yeah, I went to Slater Missouri where he grew up and I befriended a couple of the townspeople and they gave me photos of the town um, and then the, and then the newspaper there so it's just kind of this constant journey of looking um, of find seeking it out but also um, you know through my travels I meet people who have had held on to these photos of Steve McQueen for years and uh, allowed me use of them um, and then there, of course there's there's photo data banks where you go and you use them um, but I always try to find, pictures and documents and photos that haven't been seen before. Of course, that's a, a very tough task uh, because he was such a
1: well photographed guy. But,
0: um, uh,
1: you know, I, I try to seek out all sorts of different uh, resources. Yeah, it's an interesting book and it has so many quotes. I, I, we talked about this earlier in the podcast. It's like 500 quotes. And Uh, great pictures. It's something you're certainly going to want to, it's a great coffee table book if certainly if nothing else. And I I think it tells some interesting stories of a guy who's not only well known as an actor and is known for certain kind of roles, but is also associated with motor vehicles, um, racing, and motorcycles. And that for our group, certainly the folks that watch this podcast, that's something, and listen to the podcast, that's something I think that people are interested in. And it's been sadly 40 years since he's passed away. That's hard to believe. It really is. Um,
0: and it goes by so fast and, and, uh, but to get back to the, to the motorcycle pictures and photos, that was the easy part. And the easy part was finding quotes. Um, because he was, you know, McQueen was a tough guy to interview. He did not want to talk about himself. He did not want to talk about his personal life. He talked about acting, that it was a can it was a candy ass profession. And, um, he did, you know, he, the way he acted, he didn't have a lot of respect for it. He actually did. But what he was easiest talking about was motorcycle racing. But he was also careful not to go too far and, and promote himself as a professional driver uh, or a guy that uses motorcycling or racing to get publicity. So um, that, the only, but the only thing that wasn't tempered about his life was when he talked about his passion for motorcycles and racing. That's, that becomes abundantly clear when you see these quotes.
1: Yeah. One of your great quotes was, uh, I'm not sure if I'm an actor who races or a racer who acts. (laughs) And he gave that quote when he was in England and he actually,
0: he, he, he did the movie, the war lover with the Robert Wagner, excuse me. And the reason why he took that job was that he could do a lot of professional racing. I mean, think about it. What actor today would do, would do something like that. So he took that, uh, he took that job on so that he could, get a lot of professional racing under his belt. And it was at that time he hadn't broken just yet. The, the Great Escape had not come out. And he was really seriously contemplating uh, a career as a racer. But he knew that it would be limited physically um, and that it wouldn't be as much money. And so that was you – know, So, but his next picture was The Great Escape. And he realized, you know, hey, I, I need to – movies for my wife <clears throat> and I can continually
1: do it. And it, it won't break down my body like motorcycle racing would. Was it the greatest escape he was doing when the studios kind of got on him for basically racing cars? He had to kind of quit that for a while. Yes. I think the story is that he, well, they got him way before that. I think on the
0: set of hell is for heroes, a few movies before he had wrecked a couple of rental cars and they said, the next one that you wreck is going to go on your bill. He stopped that. Um, they did ask him not to race or participate in England, and he did it anyway. And then, of course, you know, he got a couple of tickets on the Great Escape. And then I have found these incredible new photos of him on the set of the Great Escape in these black motorcycle leathers. And there's one picture where he's really airborne. I'd always heard the story of, you know, he could have done that jump himself. And I always thought, eh, maybe, maybe not. But then you see this picture and you go, okay, he could have done that jump easily. But yeah. he didn't. He didn't because of insurance reasons.
1: Yeah, well, that, obvious, that obviously is something that they have to come across, especially in the movie business. They always have to worry what he's doing. But, but he's the kind of guy, at least as uh, you get an idea by reading your book, that he kind of is going to do that no matter what, if he can get away with it. It didn't right. really matter what the the studios wanted. He kind of would sneak away if he had to and do it under the guise of something else. So he was kind of a guy who was going to race no matter what.
0: Right. And and there's a, there's a good photo of, of him with his face busted up after he oh, yeah. went, he went to uh, Germany for the uh, Olympic trials. And, you know, he got busted up pretty good. There's a lot of stitches in his face. Um, and, uh, you know, He really freaked out at that time you know he he, that's when the realization came to him hey my my face is my meal ticket i i can't be doing this it's serious as i used to in the past
1: so so that was olympic trials for the 1964 team motorcycle racing yes see we don't have that today (laughs) <laughs> see that's a sport maybe that's a sport we have to bring back i guess at one point they were talking about bmx or something like that but no that's because they're starting to bring back old sports maybe we start bringing back motorcycle racing i'm just saying well and the interesting thing about that was um i found out kind of behind the scenes like
0: he had to fund everything he had to pay for everybody to get over there mm-hmm. pay for the motorcycles you know there was no such thing really as sponsorships back then so mcqueen was underwriting everything but that showed you how much he wanted to do it and how much it meant to him as a matter of fact there's a great picture in the book of him holding the american flag and smoking a cigarette talking about how how deeply embedded he is as an american
1: and he didn't realize that until he was in another country so he goes on to do bullet and apparently with some of the racing scenes in there and i say racing it's not really racing it's uh the certainly the well-known car scene where he's bouncing around san francisco's lombard street and all these other places well yeah i believe part of it was on lombard street anyway he was bouncing around all the streets and doing all sorts of things in the car the mustangs diving he's being chased by a dodge charger and eventually that gets imploded when it goes into a gas station of course it's all set up by special effects but still apparently According to the book, his wife didn't really appreciate some of the uh, driving mishaps on that. Right. And, and he had um, and I actually talked to the, the, the stunt coordinator of that film. And he
0: said McQueen had uh, torn up some cars and he, and he was kind of tired of McQueen anyway. And um, and then, of course, uh, the morning that, that this big stunt was going to be required of him, he got this phone call saying, hey, you don't have to come in until 10 a.m. or something. And when he got on the set, he discovered that Bud Eakins, who doubled him in The Great Escape, was also doubling him as a driver. And uh, he realized that he had been had. But they, they basically just kind of said, look, you've got to cool it. And, um, you know, you've got to let Bud do the, the heavy lifting on this one. But there are some interesting shots in Bullet where if you see, if you see the, um, uh, the rear view mirror and you see McQueen's face, he's actually driving. But when you see it flipped up,
1: he's not driving. Ah, yeah, very interesting. Well, I, the reason I brought that up as well is there was some remark in there about apparently his wife showed up on this set and started raising some hell apparently during uh, some part of a shooting of bullet because, appa- cause again, he was probably racing a little too much. Right. And she had to endure – she not only
0: had to endure his, his racing in private, she also had to endure <laughs> – uh, you know, these flights of fancy when it came came to doing stunts. Because McQueen was just, uh, he was a macho guy. And he just didn't, he didn't want anybody know. He certainly didn't want the public knowing that he had a stuntman. As a matter of fact, one of his stuntmen on the set of The Getaway, um, if you recall, McQueen wore a trench coat. And um, anytime this other stuntman appeared on the set with a trench coat, McQueen would quietly slink off or he'd take off his jacket just so that the public would know that he a stuntman.
1: Ah, very yeah. interesting. Okay. There was a lot of, he came into the news really about a, I want to say about six months to a year ago. Well, it's, it had to be more than six months, but it was the end of last year because the bullet Mustang sold. Right. Uh, they came out of the blue about a few years ago. Uh, the guy who owned it and McQueen actually tried to buy it from him. Correct. That's correct. And the letter, where he attempted to buy, and I say
0: attempted, it, it, was, it was a pretty bad attempt because he ends the letter with something to the effect of, um, but if you want too much money for it, then let's just forget it. I mean, there was no sweet talk. There was no uh, good bedside manner. Um, that's just kind of how McQueen was. So I, I put that in the letter because it's, it's kind of amusing if you read it with that point of view.
1: Yeah, it, it's real interesting. And again, he has the letter or at least the copy of the letter in the book. So you're going to want to check that out because there's all sorts of great stuff about that. And and certainly a lot of great car pictures, which I think anybody really appreciates when you take a look at what, how that all worked out and, and some of the cars in there. In his own words,
0: that it's is five, a coffee table book. Yeah, and it's five pounds. It's heavy. Wow, you could do curls. All right. Yeah, I could. My, my reporting buddy said... Hey, you—you uh, you could damage little children with that book if you wanted to.
1: <laughs> oh, what! As long as we're talking about lifting, there was something in there which, if you want to amaze your friends, this is this is a bit of trivia about Steve McQueen. It talks about how he had something he would do curls with at a younger age. I guess right after he just got married too, he would have this, have this thing that he would do curls with or work out with and use it as weights in his home and. The, if you want to be like a big man on campus and know what this is, uh, Marshall, tell us what it was.
0: Well, it was one of those old bus stops, some mobile bus stops uh, that he got in New York City. So, you know, he didn't have any money, so he, he grabbed it off a street and used it as a barbell. But he kept it all those years as a reminder of, uh, you know, his salad days in New York City. And um, And there's a picture of him, you know, using it in New York City, but there's also a picture, I think, in Hollywood, where he had it somewhere tucked away uh, in his house. So, you know, kind of cool that he had a, an old reminder of the good old days.
1: Yeah, it's really kind of needy. He kept that around to like uh, a little thing he worked out with and reminded about uh, his uh, days when he didn't have as much money and uh, he was just starting out kind of a way to keep him grounded. These are yeah. great stories, Marshall. I appreciate the time you've taken to join us here on the Talking About Cars podcast. Uh, good luck with the book, because. You know, from the looks of it, it's going to be real nice. I mean, I've seen it, and it's it's got all sorts of great stuff in it. By the way, don't forget to uh, listen, like, and subscribe to our audio podcast on radio.com and knx1070.com. Also, listen to us on Alexa. You could even listen on um, Apple Podcasts. Stitcher has us. Just look out for talking about cars. Watch our video podcast on our Two Tired Guys Productions channel on YouTube. Follow us on social media. And if you wanted to support us and get your name on our credits, it's easy. All you have to do is become a Two Tired Guys patron on patreon.com. So until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon, and that's Marshall Terrell and his book Steve McQueen in his own words. And we're all talking about cars. We'll see you next time, everybody. Thanks for joining us.